Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Rose Eva Forg Jenkins. And my name is Autumn Mornchuk. And we'll be your hosts for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Adam and Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing, and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. On this week's episode, Adam and Eve contributors Wen Chan, Luis Cifuentes, and Michelle Dang sat down with Stephanie Booth. Stephanie Booth has a master's in public health, specializing in epidemiology, and together they discussed COVID-19. We will first be providing some information on what we currently know about the virus and do some myth-busting. Then, we will move into a discussion on the racialization of disease and the impact disease has on our systems and vice versa. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Wen. I use she, her, or they, them pronouns. My name is Luis. I'm, I, I use he, him, and um, I, I did biology. <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested also in the public aspect of uh, putting science into the public eye. My name is Michelle Dang. I am a second-year pharmacy student, and I'm very interested in public health, as you may have guessed. Okay, so my name is Stephanie Booth. I use she, her pronouns. Um, my background is a master's degree in public health with a specialization in epidemiology, which essentially looks at the study of the spread of disease. Um, and for work, I've previously done uh, vaccine epidemiology, um, pro- provincial programming and planning for the opioid crisis, um, as well as work around knowledge translation and how we translate knowledge and academic literature into practice. Um, and I will note for the purposes of this episode that I am a white settler on Treaty 6 territory. Um, and I am very conscious that that affects my perception of the issue when we're talking about racism and coronavirus. Can I ask you folks why you are interested in this topic and why you wanted to do um, an interview and a show on this today? And I, I think we should note that today is Friday, March 6th when we're filming. And so if we're talking about numbers or statistics, it's based on what we know today. Uh, I guess for me, I think um, this whole thing has just amplified and uncovered a lot of racism against Asian American people, particularly East Asian Americans. And I see it kind of show up in just how people in my life have been throwing out precautions and it it feels like they're really scared for reasons that they shouldn't be. I'm interested in, as I mentioned before, I'm interested in this because I like the interest that that aspect of in putting science into the public, right? Mm-hmm. Like how how the narrative behind this this coronavirus like got so overwhelming that mm-hmm. turns in, I don't know, hysteria at mm-hmm. a level. But so that misinformation or like th- that disconnection, sorry, between the science, the scientific understanding of the of the disease or of the of the virus, mm-hmm. and then the public understanding of it, mm-hmm. and like how how is that barrier so? so big, right? Yeah, so I'm also interested in, in it because I will be a healthcare worker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is something that impacts, well, it's it's impacting everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also I am Asian and seeing some very discouraging things on like social media, see, seeing things in real life, it's, I, I just want to explore the, I guess, intersection of those mm-hmm. two areas that I'm very interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you? Uh, Yeah, so I'm an infectious disease nerd. Like, that's one of my passions. Um, 
and working in knowledge translation and trying to do evidence-based practice, it's really interesting to, I guess, be around and get to be critically analyzing all this as, as it's happening when looking at news reports and looking at the science behind it and also the public perception. I think it's a really interesting way of looking at the way we communicate science to the public, as well as the underlying issues around racism, Orientalism, um, the othering of people who aren't white um, within this larger system and talking about disease. And that's been especially prevalent for coronavirus, I think, in a way that we might not have seen before, um, partly because of social media and the spread of information on social media and the spread of racism through social media. So what is the coronavirus? Um, So I will note that I'm not a clinician. I'm not a physician. So the information I have is based on a lot of research that I've done, as well as my background. So when we talk about coronavirus, the important thing to note is that coronavirus is a family of viruses. When we look at the common cold in Canada, about 15% of people with the common cold actually get it from a coronavirus. So there's a couple different strains of coronavirus. Other strains have caused the SARS outbreak and been associated with the MERS outbreak um, within the last kind of 20 years. And this particular um, outbreak that's happening now is from a novel virus, which means it's a new strain of the virus that we haven't seen before. When we talk about the term COVID-19, that's actually talking about the disease. So the way I say it is um, when we look at HIV and age, HIV is the virus, AIDS is the disease. So whereas COVID-19 is the disease, the virus is actually called SARS-CoV-2. And so that's something that I think has been really interesting looking at public communications because public communicators don't like calling it by the viral name SARS-CoV-2 because then people associate with SARS and like they have pre-existing um, notions about what that means. Um, so this disease causes um, a respiratory tract infection, which means that um, it'll result in fever and cough um, and shortness of breath are the most common symptoms. So the COVID-19 um, disease usually will end up being the upper respiratory tract, but it gets deadly when it be- goes into your lower respiratory tract and you get things like pneumonia. And the interesting thing about the origin of this disease that attributes um, and has links to kind of the racism that's occurring is that it's a zoonotic disease. So a lot of kind of emerging infectious diseases that we see now have origins in animals. And zoonotic diseases are ones that transmit from animals to humans. The coronavirus actually... Uh, it, it infects mammals, um, so humans and other animals like pigs um, can get different strains of coronavirus as well as birds. Um, and so for this coronavirus, the origin is a spillover event. Um, the virus was already in animal populations and then mutated and came into humans. And because of the links to uh, the food markets in Wuhan, that's kind of where a lot of the basis for I think some of the racism has come in um, and talking about customs and things like that. So is this spillover like unexpected thing to come eventually? Because I mean, our population mm-hmm. is growing, we're decimating forests, all this stuff. Yeah. So this spillover is gonna is not a new thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's a thing that has affected our population, our ongoing population for quite a while. Yeah. So zoonotic diseases are fairly common in the kind of emerging pathogens that we're worried about these days. So if you think about a few years ago with Zika virus, that's something that I mean was spread by mosquitoes. So a lot of the diseases that we're seeing are because of the very close interconnection between humans and domestic animals and wildlife, which has become more and more common, both because of population density, people moving into what used to be kind of wildlife areas um, in nature and being more likely to come in contact with wildlife, um, as well as climate change, changing some of the patterns of animals and other mammals um, in the world, which makes it more common for us to come in contact with them. What exactly it's 
like in the disease that because it is not more deadly than other diseases that ha- like mm-hmm. we, we we have confronted as uh, as humanity mm-hmm. so what is that exactly like exactly that point where it turns into oh this thing like uh, we should be worried mm-hmm. about I think for coronavirus, this specific strain, it's because it's new, which means that we don't necessarily have all the answers about it. We don't really have a great sense of the fatality rate, of how infectious it is. There's all these questions, um, and people start getting scared because they hear differing opinions from different scientists, as well as differing um, opinions from health service providers and the government. Because it's so new, we don't have a vaccine for it, I think freaks a lot of people out, which is ironic because we know that vaccination rates for a lot of common diseases aren't as high as they should be, um, as well as we don't necessarily know the best way to treat it either. From what I have read, they're still trying to figure out the right antiretrovirals and actual treatment for people who end up hospitalized. So there's just a a lot of unknowns, which I think freaks people out, especially for people who are so used to being in this almost information overload, um, having, you know, 24-hour news cycles, having social media that they can uh, kind of get updates um, and validate their own pre-existing opinions. So um, having all this uncertainty, I think, is what's really scaring people. As well as, I mean, some of the other narratives that it plays into around geopolitical tensions and travel and globalization that can scare a lot of people. You, you point out that there's certain conditions that happen that mm-hmm. increase the chance of this spillover happening. One of the myths is that this disease or the coronavirus came from people eating mm-hmm. certain or following certain customs. Therefore, mm-hmm. it's a punishment or is like a result of it. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was looking into some of the common myths or common discourse in the media around this, it's interesting because you can kind of see how certain myths bucket into different like racist tropes. So for coronavirus, one of the myths that was circulating a lot was that it came from people eating bat soup and specifically from Chinese people eating bat soup. Um, And so the undertone of that, and obviously I can't speak about this from experience, but there's always been this very odd way that white people especially view like Asian ways of eating and Asian food customs. And so part of that is like feeding into that larger othering of people in Asia where people in the West, specifically white people, are saying that however people have different customs, that's very other and that's weird and this larger kind of discourse around the food that people eat, which is part of like this bat soup myth, which is not true. Uh, it's a respiratory disease. You can't get it from like eating bat soup. That's not a thing. Part of this had to do with the media coverage of where we assume that the first cases came from, which was the open air market in Wuhan. And just the media portrayal of, oh, this is an, an open market and it's so unsanitary and there's animals screaming in the streets and that sort of thing, which I think is ironic too because we're so used to specifically with our food system in Canada it's like very sanitized and people are so far removed from their food that for them to hear about people you know buying like live animals or recently butchered animals to them just seems so you know barbaric and crazy when in fact we have a system that also is very violent to animals and and mass production and slaughter but we're so far removed from it that it's easy um, easier for people to pass judgment on someone because they don't know where their own food comes from. And yeah, I think it's it's just interesting too in hearing this is just othering of the way people um, in Asia eat food and consume food. Like people are so willing to criticize and say it's different than them when it's just things don't have to be the same and we can't center whiteness and like white culture and customs as being the only thing that is normal, right? So the other one, and this is an interesting one, is that that the coronavirus was actually created by Chinese scientists as a bioweapon. Mm-hmm. So I've seen this one because like, I also received news from Latin America, right? Mm-hmm. The common discourse, oh, it's it's a bioweapon. It's, mm-hmm. it's a way to population control. 
what is the the, yeah. the, the discussion so, behind it. So it's not true. Um, the reason, actually, I, I kind of did some tracing back to the original source of this. And there was a Washington Post article that suggested that it was a bioweapon or that coronavi- this coronavirus strain had been created by scientists. And they based that on a source they said was like someone who had formerly worked in, you know, U.S. intelligence or something and had this insider information. And then the myth just spread from that. But I think the reason people were so willing to believe it or to keep spreading it in different ways was because of the larger geopolitical tensions that especially European countries and the United States specifically have with China. There's just this very historic and ongoing distrust of China and viewing China as like, you know being very secretive and there's communism and there's all these things that they're not telling us. Um, when the WHO first reported coronavirus on December 31st, that was like a narrative that was a lot online was, oh, you know, they're saying there's this many cases, but they're hiding something. And that's like a very common narrative. And when you even will read about, you know, financials or anything to do with China, there's always this like very interesting lens that's put on it where it's like, oh, we can't trust China. And I think part of that is just the historical tensions and things that have gone on that a lot of which are related to um, U.S. discourse in that relationship. And I guess the final myth that we're busting (laughs) today, people of Asian descent are more likely to get coronavirus. Totally false. I mean, the coronavirus originating in China has just meant that more people in China specifically were able to get the disease because they were there. But generally, your ethnic background will not have anything to do with whether you're more or less likely to get disease. There will be things that, due to different customs, might make you more susceptible to disease or different health states. But if you see an an Asian person, they're no more likely to have a disease than anyone else. Yeah, it's funny. My mom was worried about getting shipments from China Mm -hmm. and like going to the swimming pool Mm -hmm. and all of that, which seems kind of ridiculous if you actually understand how... It's spread. Speaking about spreading, <laughs> how is the coronavirus actually transmitted? As I said, it's like a, it causes a respiratory infection. And so that means it's going to be transmitted through respiratory droplets, with or, which are people coughing or sneezing. At this point, uh, based on the evidence I know, we don't think it's generally spread by people who are asymptomatic. So essentially, someone has to have the symptoms of coronavirus to be actively spreading it. But I mean, shaking hands, like direct contact um, is a way that it is spread or can be spread. But things like receiving packages and that sort of thing, there's there's no substantial evidence that says that that is an issue. So uh, the, the virus ha- has a hard life? I think the like the incubation period, and w- which is reflected in the quarantine period, is usually between 2 and 14 days. So essentially, once you are infected with a virus, it takes a while for it to show symptoms. Um, and the reason why most of the quarantines are two weeks is because we're thinking, based on previous coronaviruses and other similar viruses, that that's kind of the time period where it may actually lead to symptoms, and therefore you could be spreading it. But um, as far as we know, this specific virus based on the other strains doesn't live well on dry surfaces so what we call fomites if um, it gets on a tabletop or surface it's not likely to survive that long so it's not a huge risk of being infected through that so what do we know about exactly about the virus Mm -hmm. what what is there's a lot of things that or there are some things we know about it i should say so we know it's a coronavirus so we know the essential structure and makeup of it based on different tests that have done on it we essentially know like which proteins in the body it's going to affect but again because this is a new virus there's still a lot we don't know it's one thing to know about the micro but it's another to know about how it actually infects people and how it spreads so one of the issues with coronavirus is because the numbers are changing so much every day and we're getting more and more inf- information it's hard to pin down some of those really specific numbers or 
around infectivity or mortality, but we do know it is a coronavirus, so we, we essentially know the family virus as it's from, which gives us a clue based on the other outbreaks that have happened with um, novel strains, kind of what it will do, but I mean, this one is new, so there are a lot of unanswered questions. And that that is why it's so hard so far to get a vaccine. Yeah, so new vaccines take a few years to make, um, and that's the issue. So even with the flu vaccine, which, I mean, we have flu vaccines every year and have for a long time, those actually take six months to produce. And that's with a system that already has the entire structure able to do them. For coronavirus estimates, I've seen estimates around 18 to 24 months. So if coronavirus does continue spreading and become endemic, which means it would kind of spread every year, it would still take a few years to get a vaccine on a global scale too. Because no matter what people like to say, there is a lot of testing and science that goes into vaccines. <laughs> um, and so before they will release anything, they'll they'll make sure there's like lots of tests and balances on that. So a lot of the good public health reporting and reporting from public figures like chief medical officers of health has been very good on kind of the key facts. So. One way to prevent coronavirus is hand washing. And a good way to describe the hand washing that you should be doing to protect yourself was um, described by Dr. Bonnie Henry, the BCCDC, who said, wash your hands as if you just cut jalapenos and needed to put contacts in, which means you should be, you know, washing for a while, making sure you're getting the places that are often missed, like your fingertips, the back of your hands. I, I would say hand washing is first, if you if that's not available to you, using a high alcohol content hand sanitizer. Um, and then we see kind of social distancing and respiratory etiquette, which means if you are sneezing or coughing, make sure to do it into your elbow or into a tissue and then proceed to wash your hands. Um, or if you do feel sick, try and keep a distance from people. So that might mean, you know, staying at home instead of going into crowded spaces um, and just being more cognizant about the people that you're coming into contact with. And also, don't be racist. That and helps. why not antibiotics? Just so people. Yeah. Can. OK. <laughs> do you do either of you want to answer that? Because it works for bacteria, not for viruses. Yeah. Um, when people are like, oh, well, if I get sick, I'll just take antibiotics. No, antibiotics don't work for viruses. Yeah. So that includes the cold and the flu. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, for me, I work in a pharmacy. Mm -hmm. um, people have been asking for masks. We've yeah. been sold out of them for like the last two months. Yeah. Uh, do they work? So the masks aren't a good way to protect yourself, partially because people don't wear them properly. So again, it, you're not supposed to be like one of the ways to prevent coronavirus is not like touching your face or touching your lips or your mouth. And unfortunately, when people wear masks, they kind of are subconsciously readjusting them and touching their face a lot. Um, but masks are a good option for people who are sick and are coughing and sneezing. Um, if you do have to go out, that's an option. Um, and one of the problems with mask shortages is that people who do work directly with the public, like healthcare providers now, are having trouble getting them as well as for first responder agencies there uh, there's shortages for people that are more likely to come into contact with people who are sick and who do need the masks for other reasons i got a woman uh, come into where i work and had a mask and mm -hmm. she had uh, she, she was trying to speak english she was from someone in latin america so i couldn't understand properly what she was saying so she removed the mask and talked to me. Every time she tries to uh, talk, like remove the mask mm -hmm. down and then put it up. So yeah. Th that's speaking to them. Yeah, I've seen some <laughs> people online too who you'll see them kind of wearing it around their neck while they're smoking. And I'm like, okay, oh. well, you're defeating the purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that you think 
uh, we may be missing. It's just important for people to know that there are a lot of unknowns still, but that when looking for information, you should follow credible sources. So whether it's the Government of Canada um, coronavirus website, um, reports from Alberta Health Services or the Chief Medical Officer of Health, um, try and stick with reputable sources of information because that's, I think, where a lot of the confusion is happening is people... Um, getting health information from kind of mass media or social media, and that's a huge issue. You just heard the first part of our discussion with Stephanie Booth on COVID-19. We're your hosts, Autumn Mornchuk and Rose Eva Forks-Jenkins. For more information on COVID-19, we encourage you to visit WHO or the CDC. More locally, you can visit Alberta Health Services websites to get a more comprehensive understanding of the virus. Now, let's move on to the second part of the discussion, where we explore the broader implications COVID-19 has on all of us. We've kind of hit the first one, but mm. when and why did the disease get racialized mm-hmm. in its comparison to like H1N1 before? Mm-hmm. All right, so disease racialization essentially refers to diseases being looked through through this lens that is specific to race um, or ethnic backgrounds. And so there's a very long history of non-white people being used for scapegoats or blamed for diseases. Part of that, again, is from this issue of centering whiteness and white culture and customs as the norm and that everything else is different. So Um, Of course, the definition of who is white and who is not white has changed. So like in the 1800s to early 1900s, I mean, people from Italy, when they came to North America, weren't considered white. They were considered um, immigrants and then different disease was associated with them. It's this larger problem about diseases being associated with colonized countries because people see them as different. Therefore, if there are diseases there, it must be because of that difference. And then fears for the colonizers of those diseases coming back to the countries that they are from. There's this imperialist system of beliefs around where diseases originate and why they're originating that oftentimes is very false. Um, And we even see that in the naming of diseases. So cholera used to be referred to as Asiatic cholera, the Spanish flu, um, which actually originated in France or potentially Kansas. Like that spread of misinformation, I think, is one of the pieces there. The analysis that I I made of it is the knowledge of a disease it's mainly relying on on doctors Mm -hmm. or scientists Mm -hmm. right which are part of let's say an elite there's a barrier for people to access that knowledge and the only answer or if you have lack of education because it's systematically Mm -hmm. uh, removed from you uh, then the other answer is just rely on emotions and Mm -hmm. build these narratives that would explain Mm -hmm. um, the disease right Mm -hmm. and then I don't know if that's a human condition or not, that the authorization when like somebody's different. Mm-hmm. I think there's also a huge part that globalization has to play on this. We have so much access to, you know, everything in the world, but at the same time, we don't. There's still this barrier, and then when people kind of can see through that, but, like, at the same time don't fully see through it, mm-hmm. there's lots of inf- misinformation going through And that just adds to everything. And then, you know, again, the fear of the unknown, you don't, if you've never been exposed to these, like, different cultures, different customs, it's it's a dangerous thing, fear of the unknown, and then just impending health dangers of this virus, I guess, Mm -hmm. that has also been spread. Yeah, I feel like, especially in Canada, with the quote-unquote multiculturalism aspect of how we think we are so inclusive of all these cultures, but 
really, I think this shows how disconnected we are from actually understanding other cultures and other ways of living. And, and it really uncovers a lot of racism in Canada. The interesting thing is, like racism is so insidious and so prevalent, but it's interesting using this example because it is so clear. And for a lot of racialized people I know, when I was telling them about doing this episode, like a lot of them aren't surprised. They're like, well, of course, like Chinese people are going to be scapegoated and there's going to be like racist attacks reported and that sort of thing. So it's interesting to seeing who is actually surprised by this outcome. And then again, how far some people are removed from critically thinking about racism or thinking about how racism affects day to day life. Just a little anecdote, I was getting my eyes checked about a week ago, and the clinic I go to is in Chinatown, Mm -hmm. and they posted up a little sign saying, if you're experiencing signs of being sick, please stay home, and Mm -hmm. all these precautionary things. And I talked to them about if they experienced extra racism because of what was happening with the coronavirus, and the person I was talking to said, No, we always experience racism. Mm -hmm. So this is something that happens constantly. But Mm -hmm. I think this example just highlights that racism isn't always brought to light in day-to-day life, but it's so prevalent in our society still. I I think it's hard, too, for narratives like this when we still have and historically have had laws in place that promote racism, especially when we look at public health. So um, historically in Canada, we had immigration laws that banned um, Chinese people from immigrating to Canada from the 1920s to 1940s, specifically because of kind of this veiling of disease and not wanting to bring disease into Canada. Um, And then seeing current public health responses from other countries where they're banning people from certain countries and seeing the countries that they're choosing to ban people from. I mean, it's not surprising if you think about kind of larger racism in this narrative that people are choosing to ban people from China and from countries like Iran when other countries like South Korea and Italy have just as many cases. Mm-hmm. And I, with with the travel bans, mm-hmm. like, where does it stop? Mm-hmm. Will we be putting the entire world in quarantine, just closing off all borders? Like, where do you where yeah. do you see that going? Yeah. So the one thing about travel bans is there isn't a lot of evidence that they actually work. They are suspected to potentially delay the spread of disease into a country or the spread of pandemic diseases into a country. But as far as the research shows, there's not a lot that says that they're actually going to be like a super effective response, um, especially if they're used alone. And the problem with that is that like there are so many unknowns. And even when we do establish a travel ban, a lot of times it's not actually really going to work because disease doesn't know borders. So you might ban people from one country, but if there's a very close neighboring country who's having the same problem, like that's not going to stop the disease from coming in there. Um, Or even hearing accounts of people on Twitter saying, oh, like I actually just came back to Canada from Seattle, which is having a big outbreak. And they didn't seem to care at the border that I was from Seattle. But if I was someone who had been in Asia in the last two months, like they cared about that. So one of the hard things is that it's like if you institute a travel ban, it's not going to be totally actually put in place in a meaningful way.
And the interesting thing about still travel precautions to China is that based on the numbers we've seen this week, the kind of mass infection that's happening in China is decreasing. So, I mean, we're banning travel to countries where they have, from what we think, kind of gotten this under control and really stopped the larger spread and increase. Whereas there are still so many countries where there's a lot of unknowns for a variety of reasons, whether it's because they don't necessarily have public health and surveillance systems in place that can detect cases as fast, whether it's because they're not doing mass tests testing, or whether it's because they're trying to kind of figure out what their response is and how that is going to impact their economy. Like we've seen lots of economic um, ups and downs this week because of viruses. So from other countries, it's not surprising that they would be hesitant to necessarily share um, all the information that they have, knowing the impact that it can have on travel and tourism and um, the shipment of goods in and out of the country. Relating to the public health that you mentioned at the beginning, um, is there something not- noticeable that you see in the response that China or Wuhan had mm-hmm. in in respect to delaying the spread of the virus? Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing I think that happened in China is people in Canada and the West were very willing to condemn it and say like, oh my gosh, like government is cracking down and people can't leave their homes and they're shutting down the Lunar New Year celebrations. But honestly, as far as an effective response, like it seems to have worked, right? They were really willing to shut down highways and really like isolate towns that had outbreaks. Um, and that is that seemed to be effective for them. It's not necessarily something that we could do in Canada. Like people might not be as willing to stand for it as, or as willing to listen. I mean, the government tells people to do things like, hey, stop smoking. Hey, maybe you should get vaccines. And people don't listen. Whereas, um, at least from my perception and reading of what was happening in China, they were able to actually really effectively like crack down on those things and implement um, these really large-scale interventions, even building hospitals in short periods of time. Um, and people here were willing really willing to say that that was like so you know crazy and like how could they be doing that um and again it was focusing on like oh like that's so strange instead of wow that's like really innovative and the willingness of people to do that and do the work and um put time into that i think is um interesting so yeah do you think in a private market of healthcare that would have happened Probably not. And I think one thing we're seeing in the states is looking at the difference between people who are insured and non-insured and have money and don't. Even people trying to get tested or trying to get care. You hear crazy stories about bills that people are getting um, and the impact that this is having. And that is going to look very different on a place that has a privatized healthcare system versus a public healthcare system. So in Canada, um, I believe over 500 samples have been sent to our national lab. And again, like we have a public healthcare system where people can go if they're feeling sick and you know it's they don't have to worry that at least in, in part of their sickness or getting diagnosed with a sickness is going to lead to major um, economic issues for them whereas in privatized markets it can of course being sick in Canada due to different factors can lead to definite economic outputs we're joking with, with friends like that that notion of like don't tell me what to do mentality mm-hmm. Americans mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. It's like it's actually detrimental when like we, mm-hmm. we require public or like so, social action mm-hmm. that that gets delivered, like like personal freedom after all, right? Yeah. I mean, and when we see things of people talking about a vaccine for coronavirus, people uh, want a vaccine until it's available. Yeah. And then they'll, they'll start saying, you know, oh, scientists didn't know what they're doing and it's dangerous and et cetera, et cetera. So like so that, that notion of like the scientists doing mm-hmm. the best they can and the best of uh, the public interest and all that stuff. But there's some cases in medicine where doctors like highly respected people 
use populations that are marginalized mm -hmm. to carry uh, studies. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's valid in some cases, but mm -hmm. it's not so valid in other. Totally, people have a distrust of the medical system, and I think that is especially true for marginalized populations who have continued to um, be oppressed and not receive equitable access to services. So uh, an example of a population level intervention was looking at Tuskegee and syphilis. So essentially the infection of um, black men in the States with syphilis. Um, also, larger population experimentation. There's suggestions that, of course, under um, the Nazis, that there was lots of testing of human subjects without their consent um, in South Africa and other regimes. So it's not surprising. Um, I think that people do distrust the system, the treatment of indigenous peoples in Canada. Yeah, well, I've, I have a, a, an example, for example, when the Cuban Revolution was going on uh, after all the, the mess that happened and the, the revolution was won. The rural cities in in Cuba, or the rural uh, towns in Cuba, were very distrust of the like, distrusting of of the of the doctors coming in because they were accustomed to the like white doctors going to communities and pathologizing them instead of like building a social network for them to heal as a population or like whatever, right? But the doctors were born from the revolution were like uh, I don't know farmers that happened to knew a little bit about medicine right like so they were like ground from the ground up doctors i mean and and that's kind of the the, the philosophy that is right now and is that it, this doctor thing is 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 a duty it's a civic duty right so anybody should be able to do it right and so coming back to the example is that people the rural people in in cuba saw that that new medicine or the, the, those doctors like actual people who they could relate to and actually trust and now look look at the mm -hmm. level of me medical care that Cuba provides. Totally. And that's, I think, a larger um, issue with clinical health professions is a lot of people don't see themselves represented in those professions, um, which especially for women, um, women historically are treated very different by male physicians and female physicians, especially if you think about issues of um, uh, male physicians not believing female physician or female um, patients pain um, especially or um, the view that uh, physicians do treat people of color differently uh, they think that they experience pain differently and that sort of thing and so there is this larger issue of um, clinicians and larger academic institutions being very white and very male uh, and that definitely is going to affect the type of clinical care that people get not even for obvious reasons for like language barriers and, and that sort of things but being able to actually understand the context that a patient is coming from, um, the challenges they experience in their life, and also the different stresses that stigma from whether they are racialized, if they are LGBTQ, if they are disabled, like all those things do impact patients. And if people don't see themselves represented in healthcare providers, I think they are inherently less likely to trust them too. We have to look at healthcare in a way of decolonizing it, especially with how like mental health is treated nowadays it's like oh go take your meds go to therapy it's also individualized when we know there's systemic things that impact people like racism and um, all these other oppressions that many other people feel that are based in systems of of what's causing this violence and harm against them if we don't address those then that might not be enough to just go to therapy and mm -hmm. Um, from my perspective as an epidemiologist, too, and we even look at clinical research, so research that helps set the standards for what practice is going to look like, what care is going to look like, a lot of the patient populations, which are commonly looked at, are middle-class white 
usually men, right? So if we're centering the the research like around them and around how their bodies are working, it's going to definitely have an impact on the way people are treated. So we even know things like different heart medicines and um, diabetes medicines are largely based on male populations and how their bodies react to different diseases and medications because there's been this historical idea that like people of color or women are going to like have different reactions to medicine, which is true. But in a clinical trial setting, they don't want those confounders in there that might mess up their results. And so we continually see findings that shape the medical system that are based on populations which don't represent the diversity of populations like Canada. And I think going back to the systemic, I guess, cause of all of this, just thinking about how Canada originated, I guess, um, you see white settlers coming in, bringing in disease, smallpox, tuberculosis, using that essentially as biowarfare against Indigenous peoples. It's kind of interesting how it's just repeating. Like we building a country, too, on colonization and centering colonized ways of knowing. So even looking at the way the healthcare system is built with a lack of Indigenous ways of knowing and traditional medicine and that sort of thing, being considered as very secondary to more of a Western imperialist way of knowing. So how are we able to actually treat people if we're not considering what the full scope of evidence might look like? Yeah, I'd like to touch on your point of how Indigenous medicines and ways of of healthcare have been undermined. It kind of scares me to think that in the future, this could very well happen again and be much worse. Mm -hmm. This isn't isolated just to China. As you mentioned before, this could have happened anywhere as viruses are changing, especially with climate change and Mm -hmm. our and neoliberalism and all of that. I think we have to go back to centering Indigenous ways of knowing the land and knowing how to care for the Mm -hmm. land and the people to address this as much as the scientific settler notions of medicine are today. Yeah. So in like uh, public health practice, that kind of notion is what we call one health, which is using multiple ways of knowing in designing uh, and implementing policy and practices. So specifically around zoonotic diseases like coronavirus, it would be getting uh, medical scientists with veterinarians, with climate scientists um, and different folks who, who understand different things together to actually do a response, knowing that our world and viruses and disease are so interconnected with these other issues. And how would you prevent or avoid misrepresenting that alternative way of understanding? Like, for example, I don't know, like appropriating Mm -hmm. that like that notion they have of uh, health or Mm -hmm. healing Mm -hmm. and then turn it into like a white thing. That's a that's a great question. I don't know if I have a good answer for that either. Like historically and currently white people like to steal ideas from other cultures call them something different and then say it's their idea and I yeah I don't know the right way to be doing that besides ensuring and standing in solidarity with indigenous peoples as well as people from other countries and other traditions and making it known that like these are their ideas this is like their way of doing things and having those voices stand out too so actually listening to racialized people people from different population groups centering their voices in discussions too so that they actually are heard It's hard, too. And I will admit, like, 
with the system that I was brought up in, my brain sometimes really struggles with even thinking about what are other ways of knowing, right? Like I haven't been trained or brought up in a way where that conceptually makes sense to me, especially as someone who is very analytic and scientific. It kind of fights against my brain wanting to have an exact answer for everything and have things very clear. And that's not the way of knowledge and the way of knowing for so many people. And so it's continually trying to decolonize your way of thinking and decolonize the spaces that you're in to make way so that those conversations and that process of thought is easier for people. And that is a huge task for people and it's a lot to ask of them, especially because it's not often clear because we haven't previously centered those voices and those ways of knowing. So uh, you don't have to answer this if you feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. or like if it compromises your career. So how do you see (laughs) the cuts from like the UCP government that has yes. made on public education, public yeah. uh, health care. I mean, it is very ironic that as Alberta is facing a potential public health crisis that we are seeing cuts to um, health care providers. We're also seeing cuts to services that will like support many marginalized people who are going to be disproportionately impacted by this virus. But I think it is a larger trend of also looking at the healthcare system, and it's it's easy for some people to be able to allocate money for clinical care and frontline services, but it's often a harder ask for governments to put money into public health systems and those more system-level thinking and things that take longer to change. It's really hard when you look at even evaluating things and looking at outputs and outcomes. It's easy to be able to say, okay, there we have this many physicians and this many nurses, and they see all this many patients and this many surgeries. It's much harder to track the impact of public health and initiatives and the value of emergency preparedness and that sort of thing. Those are things that are much harder to put funding to. Um, And I think in a time of cuts that those are some of the first things to go. Yeah, I think that that speaks to how the most marginalized communities will be hit Mm -hmm. by this, especially BIPOC, women, women of color. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. So it's actually interesting because specifically with viral diseases, physiologically, women often actually have better responses. Women are usually able to actually make a better immune response to most viruses. So even in kind of clinical testing, women usually have a better immune response to vaccines and things like that. And part of that is biological, of course, just the way um, that bodies work differently. Um, Part of it is said to maybe be evolutionary, whereas people with uteruses and people who um, carry children have different protections to ensure the survival of their species. Part of it is lifestyle issues. So things like uh, with viral diseases, men are more likely to smoke. And so they're more likely to be touching their face and kind of touching their lips and mouth. Men generally have different patterns of diabetes and blood pressure, which can be comorbidities for disease um, and also different health seeking behaviors. Oftentimes, men are less likely to seek health care for things until they're really serious, whereas women generally are more likely to. Um, But when we talk about the disproportional effect, although we think that female bodies maybe react better to viruses, they are differently impacted. So I think one thing is looking at females specifically as caregivers. So people who are going to be around children more often or caring for family members or the elderly or doing more of that kind of um, what we'd say like domestic labor. Um, So taking on the brunt of that means that they may be more likely to be run down or tired or come in contact with people who are more likely to potentially have disease or infections. So for coronavirus in in this scenario, um, if people 
potentially are sick and they get quarantined, that's going to have very different effects on marginalized people. So for example, I am someone who has a lot of privilege in the society. And if I had to quarantine myself for up to 14 days, I could probably make it work. I would be able to probably convince my work to let me work remotely so I could stay home. I would be able to um, afford to order groceries to my house so I wasn't going out in public. But a lot of um, marginalized people, specifically people of color, um, LGBTQ folks, and women, specifically women of color, are often facing underemployment where they are working a lot, um, not necessarily in unionized jobs or jobs that have things like sick pay and sick coverage or flexible work arrangements. Um, And so those are people who, if they are in a situation where they do get sick or even have to be quarantined, that's going to affect them so differently. And we know that a lot of people in those groups may be living paycheck to paycheck. And so not getting one paycheck because they're sick can have huge impacts on their lives. And from a public health stand, mm-hmm. how do you bridge that with like policy mm-hmm. and making sure that these people receive the health care that mm-hmm. is a right to them? I think one of the things about public health is you don't just look at biomedical sickness. You have to think about all these other social determinants of health. So um, employment, looking at different ways that people are going to be impacted based on their race and ethnicity, their gender, their age. So you have to have public policies in place in the larger spectrum, whether it's employment, education, that are supporting people who are marginalized because those are going to have direct impacts on their health. So making sure that we're fighting for things like unionized jobs and jobs that allow people to take time to be sick when they need, that pay them a living wage, that give them fair working rights, and then also ensuring that people actually do have equitable access to health care. So in rural settings, making sure that people actually will have access to family doctors, they will have access to pharmacies, which is a huge issue, especially looking at the different services that people are going to get based on the languages that they speak, based on their ability to get there, whether it's being not able to get to health care services and settings because of disability, because of cost, um, breaking down some of those barriers so that people actually have equity with healthcare access and not equality because people have different needs and we need to be able to respond to those different needs. I feel like with the media, it plays such a huge part in perpetuating this scare. How do you bridge that with Mm -hmm. uh, public health and conveying the right messages that need to be get across? Mm Historically, um, healthcare providers and governments have not been good at um, appropriately using communication techniques to actually inform people and make sure that people are getting the information that they need. Historically, lots of times if someone was a scientist or a physician, we would just assume they were the best person to communicate that. But now we actually make a better um, effort to have communication teams and people who can actually figure out ways to break down this very scientific things that people need to know so that they're making key messages using other ways of doing information. So whether it's visual representations of things Um, So the CDC right now, their big three things are what are the symptoms? And so they can show those through infographics. Um, So part of, I think, the the new face of public health is actually doing that in a different way and making sure messaging is made for people and done in a way that people can understand. So, Yeah, I think that goes back to the way of how um, Westerners kind of view medicine as it is to treat instead of Mm -hmm. to prevent and to promote healthy living, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important that we open ourselves up to different perspectives, um, learn new things so that we're able to more effectively control and manage these Mm -hmm. things when they come up. Yeah. A a, a lot of the things that I've seen among this coronavirus thing is that other notion that there's more deadly diseases Mm -hmm. like 
yeah, this thing about washing your hands mm-hmm. is not only for coronavirus, but like mm-hmm. that's a public health concern that like you should yeah. be practicing every so often, like the best. Yeah, I I feel like hand washing is like a cool thing right now. I hope it <laughs> <laughs> will always be, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's there's lots of ways to stay healthy, and I think hopefully people actually realize the importance of that. Through preventative measures, we have like vaccines and hand washing and social distancing. People should be using those at all times, especially in North America in the winter when it's flu season. But yeah, hopefully these are some things that start to stick, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. It shouldn't take the coronavirus to implement these ways of um, well-being in Mm -hmm. all aspects of your lives. I feel like there's a bigger systemic onus on um, our healthcare system, Mm -hmm. our governments, and education to supplement this way of prevention rather Mm -hmm. than treatment after Mm -hmm. a scare especially seen through the coronavirus. Yeah, and that's one of the tenets of public health is around prevention and wellness. So not um, viewing medicine or health as being just whether someone is sick or not, but this larger lifestyle and not just looking at the physical body, but also uh, mental health, spiritual health, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's larger than just like this medical, very body-oriented approach that we've looked at. And is there any concerns or do you have any knowledge of here in Canada, any kind of diseases that are prevalent or mm-hmm. so I mean it is interesting that all the media wants to talk about right now is coronavirus when we also know that approximately 12 Canadians die every day from the opioid crisis we know that there are syphilis outbreaks and infectious disease outbreaks that happen all the time looking at this year in, in Alberta seeing measles outbreaks that are preventable from vaccination that are happening and then larger I think diseases that affect marginalized populations so looking at different types of cancers looking at suicide mental health like there are many other things I think we should be considering and we should be putting more resources into and more public knowledge and public focus I think even with the seasonal flu right yes yeah please watch your flu shot wash your hands (laughs) yeah um, it's estimated in Canada that between about 500 to 1,500 people will die every year. One thing that I do caution against is comparing apples to apples. Like, the only way people can really conceptualize coronavirus is, I think, in terms of other things, like saying, oh, it's this similar to the flu or it's this similar to the swine flu. But we do have to recognize that these are different diseases. And there are, even with the seasonal flu, like so many things we don't know because it is really hard to track. And one problem, I think, with the media is that they like to present things as fact when a lot of these things are are estimates or things that we might know. Even talking about like fatality rates of comparing the flu and coronavirus, like those are things that we think we know, but there's so much minutiae there and things that we'll never um, have an exact number for. But people expect that science and healthcare is this like very exact thing when it's not. And we do the best we can to try and understand it um, and conceptualize it and give it quantitative numbers. But there is a lot we don't know. And so that is a, a hard thing around a lot of the scare in the media around coronavirus is um, they will talk to certain experts who have opinions that they can take that will shape media stories that will get picked up, right? Yeah, I like the point that you made about we need things to relate to mm-hmm. with comparing such things like coronavirus. Mm-hmm. A while back, my classmate was talking about a graph that showed the number of deaths of coronavirus in China, and it just kept increasing mm-hmm. and increasing. We have to look beyond just the numbers of the deaths and realize this is impacting 
people this mm-hmm. is impacting families and how do we as a global community care for one another beyond just being scared oh this is going to like invade my country mm-hmm. how do we stop and quarantine people mm-hmm. with fake borders and that's a good point. It's interesting too when you talk about like the like putting faces and people and narratives behind the disease. What faces are the media putting in, right? Whose faces are they showing when they're talking about coronavirus? The New York Times earlier this week published a story like, "Oh, first case in New York or whatever, or in Manhattan," but they used a picture from Chinatown. Like, why? Why would you choose to use that picture? Like, you're just perpetuating this larger narrative that is leading to racism. By trying to conceptualize stories, you're often using stories that are furthering this this narrative that people are already buying into because it's something that they think that their readers will understand. What's the importance of bringing people to tell their own stories mm-hmm. in public health? So I know in previous work we did around the opioid crisis, it was bringing people with lived experience into conversations, into policy and practice. Instead of having people who are just academic experts, really centering the voices of people and their experiences. So with the opioid crisis, we made sure that um, we had input from people with lived experience on policies and programs and even advertising campaigns, talking to them about what language we should be using for different things, what language is stigmatizing to people, making sure that... Um, when we're putting an an intervention or program in place that it's actually going to be the right thing for the right people and not just assumptions that we want to make because it's easier, because it's what research says, making sure that we're also putting lived experience knowledge as evidence because it is important evidence. And there's no Mm -hmm. point in doing an intervention or program if it's not going to actually work for the people who it's meant to. Yeah, I feel like with science today and how it's conveyed to us, numbers and hard facts get more validity than Mm. those experiences, but they're just as important, if not more, in Mm -hmm. how we understand the impact of of things. Also, when you're incorporating people's stories and lived experience, to really consider how you're doing that in a way that's not going to tokenize people or just be a story that is um, aligning with your own narrative. Unfortunately, just because of the way that people take in information these days and it has to be really fast and really quick and there's an information overload. If people hear one story, that's often me the story they associate with that whole issue. So if they hear one story about, for example, a person with coronavirus who is um, in China or on a cruise, like that's going to be the one thing that they think about every time. And it's about, yeah, making sure you're critically thinking about whose stories and not picking people's stories just because they're the easy ones to tell or they're the cleanest or they can be wrapped up with the bow the nicest. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? Let's play a game called How Not to Be Racist. (laughs) Any inputs? It's not always about you. It's it's not always about how you feel about the other culture. Mm -hmm. It's it's not about how you feel about them. It's -hmm. it's about them, right? It's not how you feel about us Mm -hmm. in your space, right? It's Mm -hmm. just us being in the space, right? Mm -hmm. I guess just have compassion. Mm -hmm. Like, that's at the base of it. Just seeing how... The scares are happening and then people are just, oh, them, them, it's happening to mm-hmm. them. It's not, it's not us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just be kind. <laughs> yep. Maybe shut up once in a while and mm-hmm. let people speak to their own stories and think not from your own perspective all the time, but think, what would I say? Not first, but what I, what would I think secondly? And try to catch yourself when you make assumptions and also be kind to yourself and know that this is built in systemically racism is Mm -hmm. 
is a systemic thing and it's unconscious and it takes time to unlearn and be gentle with yourself on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a white person for me, um, it's about constantly challenging my ways of thinking, listening to uh, especially racialized people when they're telling me that I've done something that affects them. Um, And that can be really hard. Yeah. Being gentle with yourself and trying to continually learn. Um, The only other things I want to say are that when reading on this topic, um, if they're reading on racism and coronavirus or disease racialization, that they read journalists of color, especially on this topic, people who are Asian. So when I was doing research, um, I found some great Washington Post articles by Jen Fang, some Briarpatch articles by Edward Hong Sing Wong that are really great because they're journalists who actually are affected by this issue and I think bring a lot more insight when they're talking about it. Um, And I'd like to also thank all the epidemiologists and healthcare workers who are out there fighting the fight and trying to keep the public safe from coronavirus, um, as well as those working in emergency preparedness who are getting asked a lot of questions right now um, and the people who are going to be working very hard over the next few months. Yeah. Thank you very much. That was very informative. Thanks. You just heard our conversation with Stephanie Booth about COVID-19. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Adam and Eve, Edmonton's only feminist news program. We produce this week's show in the studios of CJSRFM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on Treaty 6 territory. We are grateful to be in Miskwichiwiski again, the traditional territory of the diverse Indigenous peoples of this land, including the Cree Nehio, Blackfoot Nitsitapi, Metis, Nakota, Haudenosaunee, Dene, Ojibwe, Soto, Anishinaabe, Inuit, and many others whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence our vibrant communities. We would once again like to thank our guest Stephanie Booth for joining us and our Adamant Eve contributors Wen Chan, Luis Cifuentes, and Michelle Dang for producing this episode. If you'd like to listen to an extended version of this discussion, or if you'd like to catch any of our previous episodes, Visit us on the podcast platform of your choice at the handle Adam and Eve CJSR. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta. And our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information or to send us any feedback, please contact us on our Facebook page under Adam and Eve. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out. So if you're interested in any aspect of radio production, just get in touch. Thank you very much for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Autumn Mornchuk, Rose Eva Forth Jenkins. Have an adamant evening. evening.